It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And thank you for the, to the worship team for leading us so ably this morning. What a wonderful selection of songs this morning. In the past several weeks, we have been well instructed by Pastor Josh and by Pastor Jason in the area of Christian lament. We have learned that it is a solidly biblical practice in times of trouble, grief, and distress to cry out to God with a candid complaint, a bold request, and a resolve to trust in a God who is sovereign over all things, who is good, and who answers prayer. If you have not heard Jason's message at Katrina's funeral, you would be well served to listen to it. It is a critical and important message for us as we grieve and cope with tremendous loss. Failure to lament properly a loss such as this or any other significant pain or disappointment with our, in our lives can impair our Christian walk and our intimacy with God and with others as we put up barriers and walls to attempt to protect ourselves from future harm. The biblical mandate and example is to lament our loss and our pain, to bear our soul humbly before God and to boldly ask God to act. A lament has been defined as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Who is free of pain? Who is free of grief or disappointment in this room? Is there anyone? John 16.33 tells us this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a fact of life that there will be tribulation or trouble in our lives. The Bible also, in fact, tells us that it will be every day. Matthew 6.34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think that's the understatement of the year in the Bible. There seems to be enough trouble every day. In fact, as I wrote this, this very sentence, Denise came into my office and said, there's water in the basement. Right at that moment. There's always something. This is trivial. But I think we can all certify that this verse has been empirically proven in our lives. I've come to view trouble as the normal state of affairs. I'm not terribly surprised by it when it happens. Of course, I'm speaking of the normal, mundane, day-to-day -day sorts of trouble. I'm not speaking of or trivializing the disasters and the tragedies that suddenly blow our lives apart. But I do believe that they are related. And I do believe that you certainly can't deal with the disasters properly if you haven't dealt with the day-to-day -day trouble well. Today I want to examine a psalm that may help guide us in this regard. My question as we as a church family walk through a dark valley of grief and loss is this. How do we prepare our hearts for tragedy? How can we get our soul ready for news which will shake us to the core? Can we be ready for that phone call or text that takes us to our knees and takes our breath away? To be clear, I'm, I'm not sure that what I'm going to tell you is going to lessen the impact of bad news. In fact, I'm sure it won't. I don't think it would be normal 
to not feel devastated. One third of the Psalms are laments of some sort. The normal reaction to loss is to feel pain and to question or to complain to God at some level. There is a biblical complaint, however, and there is a sinful complaint. The difference is pride. The difference is whether or not our heart is right before God. Do we come humbly, seeking to trust God, or do we come with a proud and haughty heart, seeking to blame God? Psalm 131 is not a lament psalm at all. It is a psalm of ascents written by David. The context is not immediately clear from the psalm itself, but commentators indicate that this psalm was likely written by David sometime after he was anointed by Samuel as a young man and before he was officially installed as king after Saul's death. In that time, approximately 10 years, David was pursued and threatened by Saul many times. His life was constantly in danger. And as one commentator states, he was charged with boundless ambition and a greedy affectation of the royal throne and that he sought it by wicked practices against Saul's life and dignity. He was being unjustly pursued with the intent of being killed. Psalm writes this, David writes this psalm in his own defense. Let's read Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. Let us pray. O God, our Father, We ask for your help today to discern truth in the scripture and to apply it to our lives. May your Holy Spirit work in our lives today to clear our heart of pride and sin that we may, we may walk righteously before you. We ask your blessing on our morning this morning. I pray for clarity of thought and of speech. And we pray that you would encourage us as we go forward with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon spoke of Psalm 131. He said, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. Indeed, this is a full and rich psalm of a man who also penned many of the laments that we are familiar with. This is the psalm of a man who was anointed king but who had to wait patiently many years and through many trials to finally become king in God's own timing. The psalm is broken, as you'll see, into three verses, which form three separate, distinct, but related thoughts. Verse 1, I'll summarize the three points in the three verses. Verse 1 is David's renunciation of pride. Verse 2 is David's declaration of contentment. 
And verse 3 is David's exhortation to trust in the Lord. So let's work through these verses one by one. The first verse is a renunciation of pride by David. The renunciation of pride is composed of three components. The heart, the eyes, and the mind, or the thoughts. First, and importantly, this psalm is addressed to God. O Lord, David begins. This is Jehovah, the self-existent, eternal God. Jehovah, the proper name of national Israel. David is speaking to the eternal God. What he says is remarkable when you realize that he is directly addressing a holy and perfect God. My heart is not lifted up. This has been variously translated as my heart is not proud or my heart is not haughty. So I have two questions of the text at this point as I read. The first is what is meant by my heart and the second is what is meant by lifted up. The term heart when used in this sense in the Bible speaks of the seat of a person's emotions, desires and will. The heart is the central living, thinking, feeling essence of a person. We are told to love the Lord with our whole heart. It is the essence of who we are. When our heart is broken, our emotions are in disarray, our desires are distracted, and our will is shattered. 2 Corinthians 4.16 encourages us not to lose heart. Have you ever seen a person who has lost heart? Have you ever lost heart? Have you ever felt completely overwhelmed and incapable of even getting up and doing anything? Your entire being seems overcome and you are undone. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to guard our heart for from it flow the springs of life. This is the idea of the heart, the seat of emotions, desires, and will, the essence of a person. The heart, David says, my heart is not lifted up. When used in this context, this denotes the concept of being exalted, haughty, or proud. Proverbs 18, verse 2, translate this, translate the same word as haughty. And it contrasts it with the humble heart. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. A heart that is lifted up is a proud heart. A heart that is defiant and unwilling to take responsibility or instruction. A haughty heart demands something from others and is unwilling to give anything. A heart that is not lifted up is a humble heart, and this was David's condition. David recognized his place before God, realized that God was sovereign over all his trials, and that God still had a plan in motion for his life and for his kingship. A humble heart puts others first, whereas a proud heart puts itself first. David's heart was not haughty or arrogant. It was humble. David's renunciation of pride continues to his eyes when he states that his eyes are not raised up, raised too high. The eyes here speak of the physical countenance, which is the exterior display of the condition of the heart. The eyes that are raised too high are exalted, haughty, proud, overbearing, and boastful. In fact, I'm sure a mother can spot haughty eyes in a child from 50 yards, blindfolded, backwards, in the dark. We know what haughty eyes look like as parents. Haughty eyes are defiant and hard. 
Haughty eyes are found with their closest companions. Stamping feet, a raised fist, and a slammed door. Haughty eyes are the doorway to a house full of pride. Think of the massive and violent protests we saw in the United States this summer and fall. Raised fists, demanding voices, eyes glaring, flashing anger and boldness. Haughty means I am right and you are wrong. And I will listen to no one. I will not bend the knee. I will not receive instruction or correction. Haughty eyes come from a proud heart. A heart that Proverbs says is doomed to destruction. Haughty, David's countenance was not haughty or proud. It was not raised too high. It was humble. We can think that it was gentle and kind, thoughtful, correctable, and loving. The third part of David's renunciation of pride in verse 1 is that he does not occupy himself with things too great or too marvelous for himself. The word occupy, the word that's been translated occupy, has its roots in meanings of to walk or to go or to go along, to walk along has been translated in other versions as concern myself or involve myself. It basically refers to what you spend a large portion of your time doing or thinking about, dwelling upon. A parent would say to a child, don't concern yourself with what your brother's doing. When that child is just constantly providing updates about what the brother is doing, you all know the child. It's a fixation. Don't concern yourself. Don't occupy yourself with that. It's something that you can't stop thinking about even though you know you'll never figure it out. The great and marvelous things that David speaks about are the wondrous things of God. Things that are unable to be understood. I think about Job and his confession and repentance in chapter 42 of Job. first six verses. Then Job answered, answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then Job repeats God's question, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job's reply, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me for me, which I did not know. And God's question again, Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And Job's reply, I have heard, I had heard of you by the ear, hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job confesses that he uttered things that he did not understand, things that only God knows and that man cannot know. Job 38, if we turn back a couple of chapters, is full of questions that God had for Job that display God's sovereignty over all things and man's inability to understand and know the things of God. I just want to read some of chapter 38 to get a feel for the scope of these questions. Can you imagine yourself in Job's position? And Job has been described as a man who's blameless and upright. There's none like him on earth in chapter 1. I just want to read part of chapter 38, starting at verse 1. This is God. Imagine yourself in Job's position here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And it continues. These are the things of God, the wondrous things of God. Man cannot understand the things of God. The passage in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 is very familiar to us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We've been learning in Sunday school this fall about the attributes of God. God is omniscient. He knows all things. We are not omniscient. We cannot and do not know all things. The difference between what God knows and what we know, if we're going to phrase it as a junior high math question, you can tell I'm in charge of junior high math at home, the difference is the wondrous things of God. The things that we cannot know due to our limited human mind. As I think about this, I think primarily of the why questions that we cannot have answers to. We are to contemplate and meditate upon the wondrous works of God, His creation and all that it entails, His majesty, His glory, his work in our lives and in the lives of others. But for the things that we do not have an answer to, we are to leave to God. We are to trust God in all things. For he is good and he is holy. He cannot and will not sin. He is sovereign over all events and he is righteous in all that he does. Given what we have learned recently about lament, I don't think it is wrong to ask the hard questions of God. But it must be in a righteous complaint from a humble heart that is seeking to trust God more in the midst of pain. In fact, I think given the number of laments in Scripture, it is the biblical way to process pain and suffering. But there is a difference between asking the question and dwelling in the question. There's a difference between the cry to God for help in time of need and uttering the hard questions of complaint in the midst of pain and staying in the pain, wallowing in it, and never moving to trust. We're talking a lot about lament and pain and suffering in this regard, but I don't think that the great things of God are limited to these issues. I don't think that we can know the fine details of creation or the exact timeline of the return of Christ or how the Red Sea was parted or how Lazarus came back to life. Are these not the great and wondrous things of God? Should we spend our lifetime fixated on details that we will not know until we reach heaven? We need to know what we can know and what we cannot know for certain. If we spend more time dwelling on what we cannot know than what we do know, but don't do, we have a problem. That was a mouthful. 
I'm going to repeat that. If we spend more time dwelling on what we cannot know than what we do know but don't do, we have a problem. Get what I said? Should I say it again? Sometimes we have a knowledge of facts and information about God, but we don't ever apply it to our lives. We hear things and we say, that was good, that was a good sermon, that was interesting. And then shortly after we say, is lunch ready yet? We don't really dwell on it, we don't apply it, we just, it's just interesting maybe. Let us commit to knowing what we can know, applying what we do know, and admiring from a distance the great and wondrous things of God. Psalm 131 verse 1 then is David's renunciation of pride. His heart was not proud, his eyes were not haughty, and his mind was not fixated on the great and marvelous things of God that he could not know. So this brings us to verse 2. So let's read that again. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Psalm 131 verse 2 presents a vivid picture of a contented soul presented as a simile comparing it to a weaned child with its mother. Now we need verse 3 to make the complete connection for proof that the soul is contented in God as a weaned child is contented with its, with its mother. But let's look at this a bit more closely. We are, abundant, we are blessed with, a, with an abundance of small children in this church. Occasionally, if you listen carefully, you'll hear the discontented child that is not yet weaned. It's a wonderful sound, as long as it's not your child. An unweaned and hungry child will not be content sitting in its mother's lap if it does not receive some sort of liquid nourishment soon. A weaned child, though, has been through that. A weaned child is, can be content sitting in its mother's lap, just happy to snuggle in and be close and to be safe. The child trusts its mother to feed him when it's time. The child has learned to be content even though there might be chaos all around. I think of pictures I've seen from war-torn countries and a mother sitting there with a child in her lap and just chaos all around. Have you seen pictures like that? It's just a picture of contentment. This, this verse speaks of the soul. What is the soul as used here in Scripture? The word soul refers to the entirety of a person. Those with the King James Version will remember Genesis 2 verse 7. Man became a living soul. A living person. David says that his, his entire living person, his being, is calm and quiet. Contented in God as a weaned child is with his mother. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Jesus uses this term in a very familiar and comforting passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. David's soul was at rest, trusting in God alone. But did he make it happen or did God make it happen? The verse says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have. John Piper clarifies this helpfully to mean, I have pursued it, not I have produced it. 
If we pursue peace and contentment in Christ by coming to Christ, as the verse above says, God will give us rest for our souls. We won't receive it until there is willful and unless there is willful action on our part to receive it, to pursue it in, abundant, in obedience to the commands of Scripture. Let's put it another way. We will not achieve peace and contentment if we are living a disobedient life. Now let's put it in context with the rest of the psalm. What we have learned from verse 1. We will not achieve peace and contentment for our souls if we have a proud heart. A proud heart declares, I do not need help. I can do it myself. A humble heart cries out to God with a trust-filled expectation for help. It wouldn't be right if I didn't turn to Philippians chapter 4 at this point. Our most familiar passage, a favorite of mine. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, the contentment of soul, only comes after prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We present our request to God. The promise is that we will receive the peace of God. And that this peace is beyond all understanding. It does not make sense. Sometimes it does not make sense to others. But this peace will guard and protect our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. In light of the fullness of scripture, I believe this is what David is referring to. He has pursued peace and contentment by coming to God with a humble heart, with prayerful expectation. We will not be content if we are proud. We get rid of our pride by recognizing that we have put ourselves in the place of God, thinking that we know what is best, thinking that we need to know why everything has happened by failing to trust in the God who is sovereign over all things. If we fail to get rid of our pride, we will be destroyed by it. Proverbs tells us, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Let us calm and quieten our soul by confessing sin and renouncing pride in our lives. Only then can we be content in this life. In our everyday life, and especially in the midst of trial, let us be like David in Psalm 62, as rich as read earlier. I'll just repeat verses 5 to 8. For God alone... O oh, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. In silence, in the quietness amidst the chaos of pain, David trusts in God and encourages us.
to do the same. As we move to verse 3 of chapter 131, of Psalm 131, this is what David exhorts Israel to do. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. David urges all people, all Israel, the people of God, to hope in the Lord. David is commending this life to his fellow Israelites. He's recommending it. He's urging them to seek the same things that he has. What does it mean to hope in the Lord? When used in this manner in Scripture, hope means to have confidence in, to trust in, and even to take refuge in. It's not commonly used today in this manner, so it can be confusing or misleading if we think of it as it's often used now. But to hope in the Lord is to trust in the Lord, to run to Him in confidence for safety and protection and to take refuge in his loving arms. So very quickly, what does Scripture say that we are trusting in when we hope in the Lord? Let's look at a few examples from the Psalms. Psalm 33, verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. We are trusting in the steadfast love of God. We all know about his love. Let us trust in it as we hope in him. Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We're to trust in God for our redemption. God will redeem us from our iniquities. God will redeem us from our pride and our sin, if only we trust in him. Psalm 33, verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We are to trust in God for his favor. His eye, his favor, is on those who fear him and those who hope in him. When we trust in him, we, when we hope in him, we also trust in his promise that Psalm 84, verse 11 is true. He will not withhold anything good from us. I still remember vividly the sermon that Pastor Jim spoke on this. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold when we trust in him. And finally, and this is not an exhaustive list, let's look at Psalm 147, verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. The Lord is pleased when we trust in him. The Lord takes pleasure when we trust in his love, his steadfast and never-ending love for us. We can understand this in a small way when we see our children trusting us. We see them take a step that we have encouraged them to do and they succeed and we are pleased. It brings us joy. It's a joyful thing. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. So when does David tell Israel to start trusting in the Lord? Verse 3, 
from this time forth and forevermore. Start now and continue forever. There is in fact no better time to start than now. Just as importantly, Israel is urged to continue trusting in the Lord. We have worked through this psalm, what it says and what it means. David has renounced a prideful life. He has proclaimed the contentedness of his soul and he has urged Israel to trust in the Lord now and for all time. What does this mean for us? What do we do with this psalm now that we have hopefully a greater understanding of its meaning and intent? The psalm was not written to us, but it was written for us. While the pain of loss is fresh on our minds and our souls, I'd like to encourage you to apply the truth of this psalm as a precursor to lament in your lives. We have learned that lament is a biblical way for those in Christ to move from pain to promise. The first step of lament is the candid complaint to God. The biblical complaint is a humble complaint. God will oppose the proud. Our hearts have to be right first. James 4, 6 to 10 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When pain and tragedy strike, and they will, without warning, we are best prepared to walk through that dark valley if our hearts are already humble before God. The pain will not be any less. The grief will still be there. The loss will still exist. But there will be a way through if we are living a humble and contented life, already trusting in God for all things. When pain and loss strike the proud in heart, bitterness and resentment follow often in a destructive and a lifelong way. The proud can see no light, can see no way through without Jesus. Where are you today? You might be in one of three groups. There may be more, but this is what I thought. The first group is perhaps like David. You have placed your hope and trust in the Lord. You lean on Jesus every day. You have trusted Jesus for your salvation. Your heart is humble and your soul is content. Perhaps you have been through pain and loss and have learned that God is there for you. He has lifted you up from the miry clay and put your feet on solid ground. All glory be to God. Be like David and exhort others to hope in God as well. You are mature believers and God is glorified in this. Don't stop there. Your job is to seek out others in pain and encourage them to trust in God alone. Show them how. The second group would likely be most of us, myself included. We have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, but still have some things to work on. There are issues of pride still lingering in our hearts. When pain strikes, our response isn't completely righteous. 
When confronted with sin, our eyes may be haughty. We may resist for a time the conviction of the Holy Spirit. David could say without sinning that he was not proud, but we would have a hard time saying that. But if we did say it, we would be sinning because we were proud in the fact that we could say that we're so humble. We have room, plenty of room for sanctification. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord each and every day. We need to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we need to actively seek out and kill sin in our lives. We need to trust in the Lord even more now and forevermore. I think there's a third group. I'm sure there is. Maybe you've experienced loss in the pain in the past and you're bitter and you're angry. You've built up walls around your soul that are impenetrable to those who seek to be close to you. You have not submitted your soul to the God who created you and who knows every detail of your life and who is sovereign over your whole existence. You have not confessed of your sin before God and have not trusted in Jesus and his work on the cross to save you. You will perish in your sins if you stay there. You will suffer eternally in hell under God's wrath apart from any favor of God if you stay there. In fact, you probably bristle and resent my even saying this. You will not be able to successfully deal with pain and loss and suffering in the world if you stay there. I urge you today to hope in the Lord. Trust in Jesus today. Repent of your sins and turn away from your pride. And in humility, come to the throne of grace where you will find help in your time of need. Today is the day of salvation. As the psalm says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The book of Lamentations in the Old Testament is an extended lament for the nation of Israel, likely written after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., likely by the prophet Jeremiah. We often turn to the comforting verses in the middle of chapter 3, the verses that we are very familiar with, that start with the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But we sometimes fail to read the wider context of this lament and see the turning point from pain to promise. This is a bit long, but I want to read this because I think it's instructive to our conversation today. I'll start at verse 1. And listen to the pain. And watch for the turn, the turning point. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. 
I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and it made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers it continually and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is the turning point. My soul is bowed down within me is an expression of humility. Verse 21 is the turning point to hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In closing, let us humble our hearts before God today. Let us humble our hearts so that we can get to the promise of peace and so that we can experience the steadfast love of the Lord. Let us root out and destroy pride in our lives today. Only then can we be content. Only then can we trust in God in all things. Only then can we be prepared to deal with the inevitable pain that comes with living in this broken world. O church, hope in the Lord. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, may we trust in you today from this point and forevermore. Let us know the truth of who you are, that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you are pleased in us when we trust in you. May we humble our hearts today in all areas of our lives. May we seek out and destroy pride in every area of our life. May we trust in you in all things. And may we encourage others to hope in you. May we commend this life to others. O oh Lord, you are good. You are awesome. Are mighty, and we hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.